I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? Welcome to Behind the Mind. Join Meredith Krenmar as she chats one-on-one with intriguing, inspirational and imaginative people from Australia and across the globe. In this series of candid interviews, she seeks to discover the zigzagging journeys, pivotal events, daring risks and momentous moments that fundamentally helped form the way they think and work today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on Behind the Mind. I'm joined by the lovely Elizabeth Buchanan, an Aussie. I'm a Kiwi. I'm in Sydney. You're in New York City. Welcome. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. And thank you for getting up so early on your side to make this work. Yeah, so intrigued to your story. Elizabeth and I know each other in a professional and personal capacity. And I think when I always reflect on my interactions with you, humility and grace, oh. <laughs> navigating, always it's the two of the words that always come to mind. And I think that, you know, your story is just so remarkable and on so many levels. And I'd love for you to talk to me about that pivotal event and that moment when you found out about Sophie, your daughter's health challenges. Talk me through that. Sure. I'll thank you for those very kind words first, Meredith. They're very sweet and um, things that I aspire to. So thank you. So my second daughter by birth, I've now also got two um, older stepdaughters, but my best friend and I had organized to go and have lunch directly after my 20-week scan in utero, just because I thought it was just going to be a matter of you know, course, it would be in and out that day and more than make lunch, you know, an hour and a half later, but had to cancel the lunch with my best friend because when I went in for routine ultrasound, she got really uncomfortable really fast. I could sense it immediately. I've always kind of had a good sense of people around me and I was like, what's wrong? And she said, oh, I just might need someone else to look at this for me. And I said, okay. I was like leading her through it. <laughs> I remember it so clearly because I was like, okay, so who who is that? And she said, well, that's part of the problem because the doctor who's meant to be here on Fridays had to go and deal with an emergency at RPA. So he's not here. And I said, okay, when does he come back? Or oh, about 3.30. And this was kind of, you know, 10.30 in the morning or something. And I said, well, no. Okay, so where is he? And I'll go there. And she went, oh, yeah, that might work. So, And I said, and what are we dealing with here? And she said, heart. And I said, okay. So then I had to get in a car and go to the second hospital. And there he told me that it was very complex cardiac disease and also likely, well, he could see the cleft lip but couldn't identify cleft palate, but said that was like 50% of cleft lip babies have also a cleft palate. They did a genetic test there. They did an amnio. They did everything they could do. And then they said, we think you should actually go and see the cardiologist at Westmead. And we've called him and he can fit you in this afternoon. So by now it was kind of like three o'clock. So drove out and met him and um, Gary, Dr. Gary Scholler, who heads cardiology at Westmead Hospital for Children, Pediatric. And so he saw us that afternoon, said this is a very complex case and gave us kind of the outline to what that journey would look like. That was the day. It was a really full-on Friday in three hospitals in Sydney. I'm guessing your BlackBerry, at that was probably a BlackBerry at that time. It was probably just in the bottom of the bag with bleeping the little light with all the other things that you're about to get to and then 
How did it feel, that monumentalness of like, I was just going to go for lunch. I was just going to take this off. Do you know what? I actually was working in between and it was a BlackBerry because it filled the travel time, right? So it it was helpful to me to be busy and keep moving things forward in other places in my life that I could control. And children, when I had my firstborn, who did have a very minor medical challenge that she had to wear a hip harness for six weeks. But I learned from Charlotte, even though she was an incredibly early sleeper through the night at eight days old, she started doing that for me. She was like this heavenly child. Even though she was that heavenly and she lived on a schedule so much like they recommended you should try and get a baby on, she did it herself. I still felt this huge shift in my life around what I could control and couldn't control anymore. Even though Charlotte was now on this incredible schedule, I still had to organize my life around her schedule, if that makes sense, where I had always been so much in control of my time, my day. You know, I'm a planner. I'm planning holidays a year out on a, you know, always, (laughs) always planning holidays a year out. So it was a big shift in my life already to have had all of that change with my firstborn. And I definitely think that helped prepare me. And even Charlotte's displaced hips, because I had to take her from the hospital directly to get this cast that she wore full time, 24 hours a day for six or seven weeks, which was nothing, obviously, compared to what I was about to face with Sophie. But again, it, it taught me not everything goes to plan. Health challenges with children are completely out of your control. All you can do is be the support, the person who makes it as smooth, who understands and listens as much as you can so you can help be an advocate, which is certainly something I've learned through the now 16 years with Sophie is I'm often the one who stitches all the different doctors and their different issues and diagnoses. And I'm the one who's prioritizing. I'm like, okay, no, we're not going to do that jaw surgery until two years away because we've got to fit in this and this. And I'll sense check it with some of the other doctors, but ultimately they're kind of saying to me, well, what do you think she can handle? And that feels like the right approach. So yeah, that day more than ever, my life changed very significantly. My job became to be just like I'd been for Charlotte in smaller ways, but uh, very much Sophie's advocate and carer. I support her going through a tough journey. It's her journey. Yeah, I think it's also just surrendering. I think it's, you know, it's so you're not in control of it. But, you know, as you can say, that advocacy piece, there's letting things go, but also what can you do to be, you know, I saw an image the other day of all the health records that a cancer patient goes through and it was images of photos of all of them. And I think, you know, we obviously work in the marketing world and digital. And when people talk about digital digitization and transformation, I'm like, well, if you could just not make people repeat the same information on every single form. So, you know, you've obviously had to do that with such complex health matters as well. It's like, you know, both an emotional support, but a completely functional one as well of like, you know, how are we going to make this happen? Oh, totally. And those forms, it's so true. It's so my life. And because Sophie sees so many different specialists and different doctors and then different, you know, therapists as well, that when I get to that history of surgeries where they give you like three lines, I say, I've got a PDF. Would you like me to print it, email it? Where would you like the PDF? Because we're now up to something like 27 surgeries and nine of them are on a heart eight of them open heart surgeries, like open heart, let alone all the other thousands of ones for smaller things. So yeah, so I just say, sorry, see attached. (laughs) That's for your organization. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it in a Google Doc, so I'm constantly updating it and I constantly update her height, weight, um, all those things because every doctor wants to hear those too and I and it's on the sheet. <laughs> so You're like, yeah, hold yeah. my bag. <laughs> I've got this one. <laughs> and she knows uh, them now and she can access the Google Doc herself and she went through actually recently and put a little heart emoticon next to every heart surgery because she couldn't remember herself which ones were all hearts and it also makes it look prettier as a document. So, so now she collaborates wow. on it with me. She's great. The practicalities of it. I'd love to move on to a momentous moment which really does segue from this because in amongst this massive shift in your life, you know, children are a huge shift anyway, let alone caring for a child who is incredibly, you know, poorly. You met your now husband, Bruce Buchanan, which I'm sure you probably didn't feel that that was written in stars at that time. No, goodness. Not at all. It was actually at a work function. It was the Bledisloe Cup. And I'm not a football, rugby, any of those varieties person. But my boss at the time had said, can you please come? We're hosting a bunch of really important clients. I'd like you to meet a few of them. And so I said, oh, reluctantly, sure. I'll try and learn about how the game works while I'm there. That might be fun. And so we were in a box and Bruce was one of the last to arrive, which I learned later was because he'd actually gone to meet friends, personal friends first before coming to the work function. And when he walked in, the room unsettled. There were a lot of people who kind of got up, went because we were eating dinner before the game and went to introduce themselves or to say hello. And I was like, who is this person? And then he grabbed what he was going to eat and there was a seat next to me. So he came and sat next to me just kind of by chance. And um, I said to him, are you famous? Like, who are you? And he said, oh, I work at Jetstar, uh, which is um, an airline in APAC. And I said, well, what do you do there? And he said, oh, I'm the CEO. And I was like, oh, right. Now I know why you're famous in here because we had the CEO of Star City. We had the CEO of Tiger Air. It was a very travel, the CEO of New South Wales Tourism. I don't know why that night was a whole bunch of clients who were very travel related. That's why they all knew him. That's why it felt like he was famous. But I also loved, and it's so true for him entirely, is the humility of, oh, I work at Jetstar, you know, not expecting a second question or, and I went deeper and, and then found out that actually he, you know, was the CEO. So that's how we met. And we quickly worked out that we each had two daughters. The thing that I didn't share that night, because it didn't feel, it didn't come up, it didn't feel right in the conversation. And obviously, we were in a large group conversation was about Sophie's health. And I had really never thought I would meet someone until I was well through that journey, like a very long way through that journey, because I just didn't believe that there was anyone who would feel comfortable taking on what I kept saying, you know, like was the baggage of the century where a single mum with two daughters was a lot to try and get through first conversation with someone, you know, a daughter who was in the middle of so many surgeries and so much unknown health ahead of her in her journey, health challenges. We did go out on a proper day that he'd asked me to go out on, which was actually the next night, um, a Sunday night, but I said yes. Uh, he said to me after we'd eaten, what in your life has made you this amazing? You must have been through so much adversity to make you so human and wonderful. And I was like, I started crying because I was like, you just made every shit thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> sound like it was a positive. And he said, but it is because of who you've become. And I said, well, I feel like this is the moment. And I'd been on my 
you know, phone on with all my friends that day going, how do I tell him? How do I bring it up? How do I tell him? And then he asked me this question, which I could have been there for days telling the very long list of all the things that had happened in my life. But the most important one was telling him about Sophie. And he started to cry because he was like, I can't imagine you doing this on your own and I can't imagine this being one of my daughters if this was Sarah or Hannah, I just can't imagine. And so the CEO of Jetstar started coming to cleft lip appointments at Westmead Hospital and um, sitting by Sophie's bedside through open heart surgeries with me and the man that is Bruce Buchanan is extraordinary but in so many ways but I think that insight helps anyone understand who he is as a man and and as a dad and everything he took on in that journey and continues to carry the load with me in the journey today has been nothing shy of extraordinary. There's that the quote about every man being a great woman behind them. I think every great woman, you know, I think that's one of the advice I'd love to give my daughter and my son is that, you know, choose your life partners very wisely because who you choose and when they choose you, that can be the flourishing of something amazing, even in, you know, really shitty times, you know, it says so much about him. And then I love that, that that little crack of the window with that conversation piece. I mean, that's the the value of being able to people who ask great questions and you know when you're just like actually we're going here now and you've asked this so you obviously are capable of receiving that information which just says so much about him and also you two combined yeah thank you it's been incredible Soph was only just one because my uh, marriage had um, ended halfway through the pregnancy my first marriage and so I'd actually been single for quite some time and so but in terms of Sophie's life Bruce entered it very young, um, which has also been wonderful for her. It was a lot of ups and downs during that um, those many years. We're still here and we're still battling and, and we're all still good. <laughs> yeah, it's like remarkable resilience. And I think that, you know, when I look at sort of, you know, what you've achieved, tell me about your pivotal event moving to Sydney, because obviously that sort of segues into also taking a massive risk in your 20s opening what became a hugely successful digital agency, I guess, in the noughties, you'd say. So, yeah, tell me about those transitions. Yeah, that was that was a big one that when I reflect on feels really brave. You know, at the time you think, oh, yeah, I can take this on. And then I think back and I, was go, I think, I don't even know where that courage came from because I was, you know, an introvert, am an introvert, but, you know, I've learned as I've got older how to be more extroverted because it is helpful at work but in those days that wasn't the case and I finished high school and felt really strongly that because I'd gone to a school that was quite insular that if I went to any of the major universities in Melbourne there would be quite a strong contingent of my friends from that school who I still have friends from that school today but I could just sense that I wouldn't be able to break away enough I really wanted more space and more kind of clean slate. So I put myself literally on a train and went to Macquarie University in Sydney and I knew no one. And so I was living on campus, which is very normal back over here rather in the US and increasingly normal in Australia these days. But back then was really, really, it was only people from farms who boarded. So most of my college buddies were um, on campus buddies were from farms and from the country. I reflect and think, where did I get that courage? Because I remember not even being able to stand at the front of the classroom that 
confidently. But I did it and it did help me come more into myself. So I think I knew that about myself that I needed to find my own space, my own voice and not be carrying kind of what I'd grown up with as the perception of who I could be. I really felt like I could come more to life. And after a year, I actually took a gap year, went to live in London and travel, but got a job in London in advertising. So I was studying law and journalism. And so that sense of still wanting to discover and explore continued. And I felt like law, in retrospect, I'd more done that choice because I got the grades for it and it made my parents happy than really it was something that was being driven from me. Journalism and the arts part was more me. But And then I accidentally got a job at Saatchi and Saatchi in London. I'd never heard of the company, couldn't pronounce the company. But a friend of mine was a temp there and got me a job there because I'd get paid more per hour than going through an agency because it was direct. This is back when they had typing pools. So I didn't type fast enough to make it to the typing pool, thank goodness, because, oh, my God, they all just sent (laughs) smoking in this huge, great room, listening to things and typing. But I was good enough to do relief EA account executive and kind of support roles across different. So I I got this incredible internship. I was like the replacement EA while there was a EA for the creative team on um, mat leave, parental leave. And then I went into the retouching studio for several months. Then I went in and I literally had this incredible internship in advertising. And when I came back to Sydney, I decided I was going to send out a few resumes and see if that experience would get me work. Or if it didn't, I would continue and go back to university. So I had never finished my degree because I got offered a job and much to my mother and father's heartbreak because they are from the era of, you know, having multiple. My mum never stopped learning. She was still doing PhDs and masters in new things and learning new languages her whole life. But I discovered that I was ready to work and loved working and yeah, never went back full time to finish my degree. No great shakes <laughs> on that one really, is it? You know, and I think, you know, what a, and you know, London in those days, I'm guessing was an incredible amount. I mean, London is still, London is brilliant. <laughs> one of my favourite yeah. places. Yeah, but you know, the headiness of this. And you know, do you think that prepared you for some of your future leadership roles, having just that insight into so many different sort of areas and things like that? You know, you see the good, the bad, the ugly sometimes when you're in support functions as well. Yeah, I definitely think it helped me hone in on what I liked and didn't like as well, because I ended up in the on British Airways account as an account exec, you know, kind of below an account exec, but support in the account management team for a a really long stretch. And account management, for those who know in advertising agencies, is that central role where you get to cross over into all the different functions when you're um, engaging with them. And I think that whole journey definitely was wonderful for me at that age. I completely fell into it. It was completely accidental. And it definitely has helped me my whole career in understanding how people can learn with you know, hands-on experience in lots of different teams. Like I even, I've set up similar internships even for someone a couple of years ago who was post-grad, had an MBA and but wasn't sure what she wanted to do. And I was like, well, then let's put you six months in this team and six months in this team and six months and you'll get to know our business incredibly well from lots of different perspectives and then we can decide. And so I still think that kind of experience, no matter what age you are, if you're trying to work out what you might love or what you can add the most value and impact in can still be really, really effective. But yeah, it it certainly helped me in the moment. And it also helped me navigate what I think 
looks good when people are working well together in those kinds of companies because it was such a big one and so many huge clients and pieces of business that I got exposed to. Fab. And now tell me about that daring, that huge risk opening. There's quite a lot of ambition beneath the surface there, you know, for somebody who you know, says that, you know, you've worked on, you know, an introvert being at work and then you go out alone in quite a, you know, the new, well, I guess it was the booming, booming times for digital then, one of the ages. Tell us about that time. Fast forward a bunch of years, ended up at Yahoo really early on. And actually the person who convinced me to join Yahoo was a guy called Craig Galvin, who had been at Aussie Mail before Yahoo. And I was at a media agency at the time that was one of the earliest buying ad space on digital. And so we had clients like Intel and Compaq who were forcing us to learn. We, they were pushing out the boat um, for Euro RSCG to buy space. And back then it was every digital ad was different sizes and God, it was it was just a, the Wild West, the very beginning of a whole new world. And it was so exciting and fun. And so I really enjoyed it. So I was one of the early buyers from Aussie Mail because they sold space. And then when Craig went to Yahoo, rather, he they worked out pretty quickly. They were a team of four or five or six. They wanted to be able to translate digital um, use or space or media that you could buy. Like what were the assets and how would they explain them to people in media buying world? And so approached me to say, can you come and help us with this? Which kind of was like, I moved into a sales role, but I I definitely also was doing like product marketing, like, you know, go to market like work because that was what they needed me to come in and do. After living through Yahoo, which was so much fun, early digital days, this is before Google had even been imagined. We saw from, you know, the leading tech publisher of the time, all the things that were going on right and wrong around us, right? So what were the big brands and the little brands doing and who was doing it well and what did great look like? And when someone was trying to engage with a customer, because we were always looking for the brands who were in any way even thinking about digital, because this was so early, people didn't have websites. No brands had websites. So if a brand suddenly launched a website, we knew someone in that company cared about digital and we should talk to them. And so then we would learn what their digital strategy was. And we quickly saw that there was a lot of companies that were needing help strategically, both creating, you know, the plan of what they thought they should even think about for digital and then how would they implement those plans. And so we decided that there was a need in the market. And so after a couple of steps out of Yahoo, I was at Macquarie Bank for a while and I I also did a short gig in travel at Contiki heading up marketing there. But then the Iraq war hit, SARS hit, Contiki's budget disappeared. And Craig came and sat with me for lunch. He met me and he said, you know what, I think we should go and solve that need that we've kept saying is in the market. And I said, really? Now, you know, do you think? So he was actually the courage. He was my co-founder. I was the CEO. So he was reported to me in org structure, but was my partner, my co-founder, and really was the one who said, I think that stuff you've been saying for years and that we've both been saying in market, we should go and try it. And because the Iraq war had happened in SARS and my budget went to zero at Kentucky and we knew no Australian family was going to send their children to Europe on a bus, I jumped and did it. Again, it's one of those things I think, is it more than me going to uni? I think just slightly less. I think the fact that I went to uni and got on a train and knew no one in Sydney at the age of 18 still blows my mind. But second to that was 
It was very scary. I felt very exposed because everyone was measuring whether or not we could be successful. And I was scared about that. I was scared that, you know, I wouldn't be able to win any clients that would be of any value. I mean, it was tough. It was really tough. We only had one internet line that we had to take turns using while we were trying to set up our tiny little office. Uh, You know, all those really typical, wonderful stories that at the time felt like they were throttling us from being effective or successful. Now we look back and think are wonderful, warm stories. But very quickly, because we'd been in the industry since so early when digital was really born, um, we had a lot of connections and trust and respect we were very grateful for. And that helped us win bits of projects and win, you know, it was all very project led initially. And then you keep proving yourself. One of the things I'm still proud of and I still talk about is that we had a very simple company mission that came to life in everything we did. And it was the word stretch. It was stretch yourself as an individual in the team. Every client brief we received, we would respond with three stretch ideas that either ignored the brief completely, ignored the logo completely, or, you know, which meant that the creative team were in heaven because they could come up with the campaigns they really, really wanted to do. Clients loved it because sometimes they would actually buy some of the stretch work and say, that goes too far, but can I take this bit out and merge it with the safe response? We had yoga in the office because stretch, stretch your body, stretch your health, stretch. It was so simple and I find that a a lot of businesses can overcomplicate values and missions and everyone in the company understood it latched onto it. And I still love it to this day. But anyway, the company still exists, which I find extraordinary. Beyond you. Yeah. It's not your founder story anymore, which I just think that's just wild. Do Have you ever visited since and then felt like you're stepping into a past life, but actually it's it's like meeting an ex-boyfriend right, or something like that when you're like, I sort of know totally you. It's totally like that. It's totally like that. First, when they moved office and I'd go and visit them at the STW office and, and there would be 10 people left that I knew. And then there was three people left over time. And I was feeling nostalgic not that long ago. And I emailed the current CEO who's doing an incredible incredible job. I think he's doing an amazing job of leading that agency now. And I said, there used to be, you know, those books every agency used to have at reception with all their history of all the foundation, you know, articles and stories in the press. And it used to be physical, right? Because it used to be at reception. And I said to him, do you know where that is? Because I bet no one in there cares. But I would love the first, whatever number it was, three books that were my era of that business if they're still around. He hunted for me and couldn't find them. But so we've stayed in touch and, you know, I I comment when I think they're doing great work and, you know, I'm so proud it still exists. It's wonderful. But there is something funny about that because my maiden name was Gray, G-R-A-Y. When we founded the agency, I said, I don't want to put our surnames on the door because I feel like that's such a done thing. Now it's called White Grey, which is so funny because that's my... <laughs> the ghost. The ghost lives that, on. That is my <laughs> later name. But, um, yeah, but I'm so thrilled it still exists. That does bring me pride. It does feel strange, though, because no one in that company knows me now. It's lives and breathes completely on its own, which is wonderful. That's that's the goal. Yeah. And what a legacy. So many agencies get swallowed up and, you know, the culture changes, which is inevitable, you know, and sometimes probably changes for the better. But to a lot of them 
don't really see it. They cease to exist quite quickly. So to have that legacy of, you know, a child that's now grown up on its now, own. Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Parented by somebody else, you know, adopted by somebody else permanently, you know, that's is just a wild notion when you have created something at such a key time, very young in your life. And I guess I try not to inherit the stories about, you know, being a woman in business and things like that. But, you know, we all know what we're up against. And I can only imagine how, yeah, it would have been a completely, you know, wild challenge at that time, let alone to be going out in business as well. So, you know, it was quite a different world. It really, really was so different. You know, my mum worked so, so hard to, she used to say, well, in my day, oh my goodness, in my day. And I'm so proud that I can say those things, right? So most things that your mum or dad do, you don't want to be repeating. That one I'm really proud to. And I say to our four daughters and even our son, you know, because it's important for him to hear this stuff too, is these are the things to celebrate now. You know, there's been a few back steps with abortion and really sad things going on that do take us two steps back sometimes. But on the whole, it is widely accepted in most societies that it, gender parity is women's rights, uh, human rights. And so there's a lot more work to do. I'm actually on a NGO board uh, called Vital Voices Global Leadership. And the whole mission is to empower more women because women around the world change the world for the better of everyone. There's still in some countries and obviously in, in some places, huge disparity still going on. But where our daughters are lucky enough to grow up, there continues to be wonderful, positive change. Totally. And you've been the change in that as well, you know, so I think it's, you know, that you're and you're continuing that through your charitable work. I just wanted to reflect on it's been um, Are You OK Day here in Australia, which I know uh, for those who are in the Northern Hemisphere, I think anywhere out of Australia, I think people understand what Are You OK means. Um, it's about suicide prevention. I think it was started by an advertising industry. Gavin Larkin, I know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you know, it's been a pivotal event that's, you know, affected you um, with your brother dying by suicide. It's interesting, actually, I'm in constant text message exchange with my niece, Maddie, who, um, my brother Simon's daughter, because she lands in New York on Wednesday night for a visit. I haven't seen her in a long time, probably pre COVID. She lives in Melbourne, Australia, and um, her dad, my brother, very sadly felt that he couldn't battle through his darkness and did take his life. It was very, I think it's significant for anyone who loves someone who does that. And even for those who are in circles of impact, right? It was absolutely devastating and continues to be something that actually for many years, the guilt was unbearable. It was, I really felt, Simon and I were really close. He lived in Melbourne and I lived in Sydney and then I was working and I used to fly him up. You know, I used to work in pubs while I, um, while I was at uni and he couldn't get a pub job. So I asked my boss in Sydney, can I train my brother on, on site? Of course you can. So I'd fly him up, train him how to be a bartender. And, you know, we were really, he'd sleep on my floor. We were really close. And so the fact that he'd got to a point where he didn't reach out because he had reached out before to talk. And even when my, my husband at the time called me, I'd gone to work really early. I used to go to work really early all the time to try and get ahead. And he said, Simon's committed suicide. And I said, oh, you've got the words wrong. It's attempted. And he said, no, no, was he committed? And I was like, I think I still think you've got this wrong. I need to call my dad. So it was just so shock and so much guilt. I've, I was horrified that I hadn't been able to help him. And it took me a very long time to 
truly not just say the words but actually say the words and believe the words that ultimately, you know, you can't change that decision if someone in that moment is so committed to that choice. I still find it hard to say it though, but I do believe it more than ever that he knew I was available if I he needed me. But had I been outreaching enough? So the whole are you okay? Um, when Gavin sent it up, I was like, how do I help? What can I do for you? This is so important because even in my life, actually I wrote a post about it when Kate Spade took her life because it was something that I'd never talked about a lot openly. Not many people, even in kind of close work circles in Sydney, would have even known I had a brother who'd committed suicide. And I really appreciate that that's changing and that it's not shameful and it's better understood as something that's without a doubt absolutely devastating and awful just like losing someone to a car crash and there's more we can do just like with road safety and car design and you know there's a lot more we can do but ultimately it's the individual in that moment who makes that decision so you want to try and prevent it as much as we can and by being more open I think we will prevent it much more but no one outside of that individual is responsible so coming to terms with that and understanding that in our society as well I think is important so yeah I definitely are you okay is close to my heart and I'm grateful that we're all talking about it more and that I've got to a point in my life that I feel I can talk about it more because that's been a journey unto itself yeah and you know the very notion that people feel triggered by it is like is exactly what you know, we should feel that way. And that doesn't mean that we should just scoot it under the carpet kind of thing, because, you know, we are, as you become an adult, even young people, it's, you know, very rarely is there not somebody who doesn't know someone who knows someone or, you know, is, is impacted. So you know, I think, are you okay? You know, I think the sentiment of it, a conversation can change your life kind of thing, you know, and being open to seeing those signs. And as you say, you know, it's not, you can support somebody, but ultimately you're not responsible for what's happened kind of thing. If you weren't, you know, didn't catch their fall kind of thing. So thank you for sharing that because I think that, you know, it's it's a conversation that needs to keep going kind of thing because there's so much more work to be done. We're humans. Things have got harder as things have become more digital. We're becoming more isolated. So it's so important that we continue to um, have that conversation. Finally, obviously that really shifted your family, changed it in so many ways. But, you know, you've talked about your mum being such an inspiration to you. How do you think she's shaped your worldview? Oh gosh, in so many ways. My mum sadly passed away a few years ago from incredibly long, like 20 plus year battle with cancer, um, which even unto itself, how she managed that and how she was so committed to positive attitude and um, mind over matter was incredible. Growing up, uh, our parents, we were expat families. So although my parents are both Australian, three of four in our family, so my three siblings and I, four of us, three of us were born in Canada and one in Australia when we came back. And so even how they decided to manage their family was is an inspiration because they had my sister and I naturally and then having been exposed to a lot of impoverished places and seeing how many children were in the world that needed love, they decided to adopt instead of having more children. And they 
first adopted my brother Simon, full-blooded American Indian, and from the Ojibwe tribe around Ontario. That's where Maddie, my niece, so she's coming to New York first, and then she's traveling to see her tribe because she's half American Indian. And yeah, so Simon and Simon and I were really close in age, and mum used to always love telling the story that because she used to say, because Lizzie was quite smart, and Simon was getting all the attention and he just shown up one day. I went back to nappies because I wanted to be, because we were nine months apart, because I was like, oh, that's how you get attention. And because I'd been early toilet trained, I was like, I'm going to go back to nappies. Competitive always, of course, but very close. And then anyway, we moved back to Australia and they, PJ, my brother Peter, was also being fostered and had a history that made him less desirable to be adopted. And so my parents again said, well, We'll take him. And he's now living in Dubai. So the expat blood, my sister lives in Singapore, has lived there for 15 years. My brother just moved to Dubai and I live in New York. So we're everywhere. And yeah, my mum inspired that in us. So having a global mind, one thing that, you know, I'll never forget about her and that continues in how we think about our children, but how we also think about philanthropy is how important education is to, you know, empowering and unlocking the potential of children everywhere in the world. So mum taught kids in Papua New Guinea, where we lived there, Dominican Republic. Like she'd been in all different places and seen all different experiences of what children are given as the opportunities in life, early in life, and was so passionate about that. She wrote books for East Timor, worked at Rotary. She'd go into prisons at night. I used to get confused by that one because she'd go and meet women in prisons to help them do arts and crafts for their children and things and I was like why are you leaving us to go to a prison and mum would say because no one's thinking about these women Lizzie and if no one's thinking about the women and showing them how to be kind and caring they'll never get better they'll never get better and we want them back in society feeling that there's goodness in the world and that there's opportunity to improve themselves so she'd go in and educate them and help them and in every part of our lives she was showing us how to set an example of kindness of giving back of mind over matter and education at the center of everything and for her daughters and her sons and being supporters of this in their lives but she was always teaching us to be bold and brave and to never take no for an answer, especially if it in any way smelt at all like it was related to a gender decision because she'd grown up in such much tougher era for women. She'd been told that it was teaching or nursing at university and she had to choose one or the other. And this is in an environment where her father was saying, you shouldn't go to university. I don't want to support this. Women shouldn't do that. You should just find a husband. And she fought against that and went to university, went all the way through teaching in all these different places around the world to one of the top Melbourne um, schools, MLC, and became headmistress there and still was unsettled. I used to say to mum all the time, I think you were born an entrepreneur, but you just never be that because of living yeah, those times. because of the times yeah. and and she used to love hearing that because I think when she started her real estate agency from scratch at the age of 54 she really came to life like she was an incredible teacher don't get me wrong that's why she went all the way to the top but she really 
found herself and was thriving and she would go and do marketing courses and then she you know she'd be like I know you could show me how to do my Facebook ads but I don't want you to and she'd just go and learn everything from scratch herself to be able to manage her own business and also she always felt strongly she wanted to understand what the people in her team were doing and this was all inspired I think she used to talk about it as part of it being because she found out she had cancer and she was like I don't have forever to try all the things I want to try. But I also think it was because she had hit such the pinnacle, right? So it was kind of like she could continue to teach and they did incredible things at MLC, one of the schools that deals with deaf children. So she'd learn how to sign language. And, you know, there was still a lot she was still learning and growing in herself because she couldn't help but not. But I think it was the combination of where to now, that kind of moment that we all go through at different points. And yeah, she started a company when she had cancer and built an incredibly successful business over 20 odd years. And she had a successful exit. Everyone always talks about when entrepreneurs have yeah, a successful exit. And she loved it because at the same time I was starting a business and went, so we would exchange stories, you know, like all of us in the family, including her son-in-law, my brother-in-law you know like it was like we were this entrepreneur family and it was fun and scary but it was impressive to watch and you know who starts a company at 54 in a completely different industry and she had to go and get her real estate agent license like she had to go and study to do that and had just been diagnosed with cancer like I mean that just sums mum up it was almost a bit exhausting watching her sometimes because I'd be like how are you doing all of this? <laughs> like, how are you? And then she used to walk to work to, so that she would hit at least 10, 15,000 steps every day. And then she would do this and then she would do this. She was the most organized woman on the planet. And we miss her so much that she's not on the planet anymore. But she was an incredible inspiration at every age in lots of different ways, if that kind of gives you an overview. <laughs> oh, totally. And I think what strikes me is what you've inherited from her beyond taking risks. It's just you create your own stories, don't you? And you've got to be careful of the stories that you tell yourself kind of thing, because you never know when you can either create those opportunities or life will present you with an opportunity. Like when you met Bruce, when you um, had Sophie, at the end of the day, you did believe, you know, when when the opportunities sort of presented, I think it's what a risk taker, you know, as a mum to have, you know, which is just such a fabulous role model. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. Thanks for listening to Behind the Mind. Subscribe if you'd like to hear more episodes. Connect with Meredith via email, behindthemind at becausexm.com.